just practicing my solo. All right, all right, all right, all right. How are you? Good to see you. I'm Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family. Whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there's room for you here. This is a safe place for you to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. The round reminds us that we're all active participants as we stay on this journey together. We're all here to receive something this morning, but we also all have something to give. So as we soak in the grace and truth of God's love, we can also pour out love by serving others. And in fact, we had a very uh, clear way to do that this morning. When we arrived around 7 a.m., we discovered that the room that the 0 to 5 kids are in uh, for this service... Uh, and the 9.30 service, not the 8.15 service, but the room the kids are 0 to 5 are in for these gym services, was set up for a book fair. Very, quite a book fair. And um, many of our 0 to 5-year-olds are not literate yet, and um, so we thought they'd probably eat the books instead of maybe, you know, uh, buy the books. So we had to uh, uh, make a game time, 7 a.m. decision to move where those kids were going to meet. So just thank you to our setup team and thank you to parents of zero to fives and folks who work in our kids' ministry with zero to fives for, uh, for flexing this morning and serving the school in that way. And we hope it's a great book fair and we hope it is packed up by next week. A very brief book fair. That's what we hope for too. All right. Uh, so about a year ago, my family had this fun, momentous occasion. We had four generations of flakes in one place. There was my daughter, Indiana, and then there was me, and then there was my dad, and then there was his mom, my grandma, we call Mimi. And it's just fun to have people of different generations together. Because you start to like talk about stuff, and what you begin to realize is people of different generations see things differently. Like, how should Indy be put in her crib? Uh, should she be put on her back? Should she be put on her stomach? Should we wedge a pillow under her to put her on, on her side? Well, it depends on what generation you were part of, how you answered that question. We, we thought about all kinds of things. Uh, differently, you know, debt and what is what is dessert and you know these sort of. My grandmother grew up in the Depression in Mississippi. She has a different view of these things. It's fun to have people of different generations together because people from different generations have different perspectives, and we can learn from one another. This is one of the things I love most about our church family, that there's just people of different generations at each of the services and then in the smaller pockets of community, people from all across the age spectrum. And because of that, we bring different perspectives and we can learn from our different perspectives. I tell you this because today we're starting a series of sermons on the book of the Bible called 1 John. 1 John. 1 John was originally written by a man named... John, good, one for one. John was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. He is one of the only, if not the only disciple who lived to old age. Most of the original disciples were killed because of their faith. John, as best we can reconstruct, may have made it to the tender age of 95. He lived a nice, long, full life. Jesus so loved John. Jesus so trusted John 
that as Jesus was dying on the cross, he entrusted his mother Mary to John's care. So how much must Jesus have esteemed John to have entrusted something that important to him? So we're going to spend six weeks teaching through this book of the New Testament. We're just going to kind of go chunk by chunk. We identified six chunks. I'm going to take the first chunk today, and that is chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 11. 1 John 1, 1, that means chapter 1, verse 1, to 2, 11, that means chapter 2, verse 11. When the Bible was originally written, the numbers were not there. The numbers were added later, centuries later, so that it was easier to find stuff and to kind of describe what passage you were talking about. And as Dr. Buds pointed out, we have these soap journals that are available on the info table, also up in the lobby. Would love for you to grab a soap journal. So it's not just what does the preacher think about 1 John, but what do you, what is God trying to teach you through 1 John? What specific message might he have for you? If you think of the Bible as being like a family picture, where there are different people with different perspectives, but they all together tell this grand unified story of God's work through Jesus Christ in the world, John is the great-grandfather in the family picture. John wrote at the end of his life, At the end of his life, he moved, or later in his life, not the end of his life, he lived for a time in Jerusalem, but then later in his life, maybe after Mary had died, or maybe when Mary was very old, John moved to a city called Ephesus. Say Ephesus. Okay, some people did. Just trying to make sure people are listening. Ephesus. Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And during his time in Ephesus, and then later when he was exiled onto an island, John wrote what would become five books of the Bible. And we call those books John, or the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. You hear the very innovative naming system here. John, or the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then Revelation. So John made these very, uh, a really substantial contribution to what we would now call the New Testament. John wrote in his old age, and so very likely he would have had the help of a close friend or close friends to either help him with the physical writing down of the book, or uh, maybe he physically wrote the book, but he needed help with the editing. This was not an uncommon practice. And it would account for some linguistic differences between the books. But the ideas out of the books are all very similar, and they come from the disciple John. John who walked with Jesus. John who was one of the first people ever who responded when Jesus said, follow me. But then John who got to watch the church spread and grow for decades and decades. He saw the good and the bad of the early church. He had seen how church families flourish and how they could fall apart. And so he writes out of this wealth of experience. He's the great-grandfather in the family picture. That's the good part. Here's the bad part. Sometimes when you read 1 John, you will get frustrated. You will throw your hands up and say, What? What in tarnation? You are a very sophisticated person. So you will say, What in tarnation? Let me give you a little example. In 1 John 2, 7, John writes this. Dear friends, 
I am not writing you a new command, but an old one. All right. The very next verse, John writes, Yet I am writing you a new command. What? <laughs> what intarnation? You ask sophisticatedly. Now, you could say, well, John wrote in his old age. Maybe he just forgot what he wrote the previous verse. But it is the previous verse. If you were a modern religious scholar, you could say, well, clearly two different people wrote these two different verses. And then were so sneaky, they put them right beside each other. Probably the best explanation of this is that 1 John reads like a sermon. It's often called a letter, but it reads like a sermon. So it may have been a sermon that got repurposed into a letter. I don't know if you know that ministers sometimes repurpose their material. But whatever it is, it comes across, it reads like a sermon. Now, in our day and time, sermons are supposed to be explanatory. Sermons are supposed to help make things more clear. They may not always succeed, but they are supposed to help make things more clear. In Jesus' time, in John's time, they thought differently about sermons. They almost saw sermons as like puzzles that you had to figure out. They were full of word plays. They were full of like two statements that appeared contradictory, but they were actually both true like the two that I just read. In other words, John's aim in writing 1 John was not to be easily understood. He may or may not have been trying to be hard to understand, but he certainly was not writing as thinking, I've just absolutely got to be easy to understand. That was not at the front of his mind. He wants you to have to struggle with this a little bit. He wants you to have to work for this a little bit. Sometimes you will get frustrated reading 1 John. Sometimes I get frustrated reading 1 John. But the struggle is worth it. Because we are learning from our great-grandfather in the faith. So in this little introductory sermon to 1 John, I kind of want to do two things. The first thing I want to do is I want to give you some handholds to make sense of the book. To help it make as much sense as possible. Then the second thing I want to do is to show you how some of these themes I'm going to talk about start to play out in the first uh, chapter. What Amy read for us earlier. Does that make sense? What we're going to try to do? Some handholds, and then how that starts to play out in what Amy read. So here you go. Here is my one person's summary of 1 John. John wants us to live according to the truth. And by the truth, he means something very specific. John wants us to live according to the truth, which is this. God is light, God is love, and God is life. So to John, God's character is what's central. Figure out who God is first, and then figure out who you're supposed to be. And John points out that God is light. In other words, God is right. God is good. God is pure. God is loving. And that God is life. God is alive. God loves life. And God is vibrantly alive. So things that are good and right and loving and truly alive, these things come from God. God is the source of all that's good. And when you and I see God clearly, it will begin to change us. It will begin to change how we act, how we think, how we think about ourselves, how we think about other people. And because God is light and love and life, 
John wants us to become people of light, of love, and of light, and life. You get it? I misspoke it, but you think you got it. God is light, God is love, God is life. So John is encouraging, spurring us on to become people of light, of love, and of life. And here's what he means practically. He means receive the eternal life available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Receive the eternal life that is available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Place your trust in Jesus. Place my trust in Jesus as the one who will reconcile us forever to God. And then as a follower of Jesus, walk in the light and love others well. That's his progression. That's his point. God is love. God is light. God is life. So if you follow Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, or if you ever decide to follow Jesus, you are being given life and called into light and love. At the very end of John's letter or book or or sermon or whatever it is, he concludes by saying this, 1 John 5.13 He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So if you are a Christian, what does John want you to get out of 1 John? Or if you ever become a Christian, what does John want you to get out of 1 John? Does he want you to be more scared or more sure? More sure, he wants you to know, to know, to know that you have eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now that's not to say sometimes when you're reading John, you won't get a little nervous about some of the things he's writing. But remember his overarching point is that you would know, would know, would know that you can have eternal life through Jesus Christ. So the passage that Amy read for us today, let's start to work through that and see how these things start to play out. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message we have heard from Him. Him means Jesus Christ. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. You see where I get the points from this sermon from? Very creative. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. In other words, God is good. God is purely good. There is no evil in God. There is not a shadow of evil in God. God is light without shades of gray. And when we start to see God's character, then we can start to see who we are. So verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. You see how he could make you a little uncomfortable with some of the things he writes? And what is the truth, by the way? Remember, the truth is God is light, God is love, God is life. So John's point is that when you and I settle for darkness instead of light, when we settle for what is wrong instead of what is right, when we settle for evil instead of good, when we settle for hatred instead of love, we are forgetting who God is. 
that the truth of uh, that God is light, God is love, God is life, that truth has not yet sunk down deep enough in our souls. It has more work to do. Now, John is not saying that if you do something wrong, you're not a Christian. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that when you and I do things that are wrong, we are showing that God still has more work to do. God still has more work to do. And primarily to press down into our lives who God is. And then we respond accordingly. The next verse. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus His Son purifies us from all sin. So God's desire for you, God's desire for me, is that we would walk in the light. But we love to flirt with darkness. Right? We all have those things where where we think, I hope nobody finds out about this. And it could be in our past, it could be in our business dealings, it could be something going on in our life today. But we think, everybody will think well of me, so long as they don't know about... And so we want to keep part of our lives in shadows. We think keeping part of our lives in shadows is how, how, how everyone will think well of us. And, and God takes a different tact through the words of John. God says, no... Walk in the light. In your business dealings, in your family life, in your studies, in how you spend your time, in the moments where only you and God know what's really happening, walk in the light. Do what is right. Do what is good. Do what is loving. And then John gives us further assurance. John reminds us that the blood of Jesus, by which he means the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, the blood of Jesus purifies Jesus' followers of all sin. Now, sin originally was an archery term. It meant to miss the target. It meant to miss the mark. So in a spiritual sense, sin is missing God's target, missing God's mark falling short of God's standards, living in rebellion against God, rebellion against God's ways. And the truth is, we all sin. And so John is reiterating, the sacrificial death of Jesus cleans away the sin for those who've put their faith in Jesus. The sacrificial death of Jesus cleans away the sin for those who've put their faith in Jesus. So the next verse, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, wait a minute. It seemed like in the previous verse, he was saying that if I'm a Christian, Jesus has dealt with my sin, so I don't need to spend much more time thinking about it. And then he follows that up by saying, and if you claim you don't have any sin, you're lying. This is what John does. You think you know where he's going, and then he zigs the other direction. I think he just enjoyed it. I'm not sure, but this is sort of what he does. The next verse says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. 
Now this helps make a little more sense of, of the flow here. So it's helpful to read just a little bit more sometimes to make sure you catch the flow. If we follow Jesus, Jesus takes care of our sin. If we follow Jesus, Jesus takes care of our sin, of any eternal consequence from our sin, of having sin separate us from God. So if we follow Jesus, Jesus takes care of our sin. That does not mean that as a Christian, you and I magically stop sinning. We still continue to miss God's mark. We keep settling for hatred instead of love. We keep flirting with the darkness instead of walking fully into the light. John's point is that we need to confess these things to God. That the point of the Christian life is to make you more dependent on the grace and mercy of God. Right? The goal of the Christian life is not to wean yourself off needing God's forgiveness. To wean yourself off the grace and mercy of God. The point of the Christian life is that you realize how fully dependent you are on God's forgiveness and on God's mercy and on God's grace. Right? Like the closer you get to the light, sometimes the more you see your own imperfections. I mean, I don't know about you, but like in the darkness, I'm one of the best looking people you've ever seen. Easy. The more I get out into the light, the more some imperfections could start to show. And then one time, we stayed at one of those hotels that has one of those like super giant mirrors that like magnifies everything about you to these huge, and there's a light on it. And and so the closer you get to the light, the more those imperfections start to stand out. That's John's point. The closer you get to God, the closer you and I get to God who is light, the closer our imperfections start to stand out. So the closer we get, we're not weaning ourselves off needing God's grace and mercy. We realize how deeply we really truly do need it. That's his point. And so he tells us it's important to acknowledge that we sin and to bring that to God because the closer you're getting to the light, the more you'll see your imperfections. He follows that up by saying, next verse, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. So he said, if you follow Jesus, Jesus takes care of your sin, but don't say that you don't have any sin, which I'm telling you so that you won't sin. This is John. This is what John likes to do. He likes to make you struggle with this. He wants you to walk around thinking about this, mulling over this. What does he, what's he getting at? What does he mean? He doesn't want you to just put your Bible back on the shelf and let it collect dust and say, well, wasn't that special? He, he wants you to walk around really thinking about this stuff so that it will get deep down in your heart, deep down in your mind, deep down in your soul. God is light. God is love. God is life. Let that transform who you are. Let a relationship with that God transform who you are into a person of light, a person of love, a person of life. I mean, there are some things in 1 John that you could interpret as saying that you have to be perfect. I will give you one example here. 1 John 2.6 Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. All right, no sweat. 
That's easy. Just live like Jesus. Good. That shouldn't take me till Friday. Another example. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. You could read these verses. Walk in the light like God's in the light. If you claim the name of Jesus, you need to live as Jesus did. If you hate a brother or sister, you're still in the darkness. You could read these verses and say, okay, I I guess I just need to try to be perfect. Is that John's point? Does John want you to try to be perfect? Well, remember his overarching point is that you know you have eternal life through Jesus. But does, God, does John want you to try and be perfect? Well, I think the answer is yes, and I think the answer is no. Because this is John. John is not afraid to hold up the standard. John is not afraid to hold up the goal, which is that you and I need to become more like the God who is light and is love and is life. A clear vision we're being called to. And yet, when we live on planet Earth, we will never fully reach that vision. We will never hit that mark. We will never uh, fulfill that goal perfectly. So does God want us to sin? No. Does God want you to sin? Does God want me to sin? The answer is no. Does God want us to just be casual about the ways that we settle for what is wrong instead of what is right? When we settle for hatred instead of love, does God want us to be casual about that? No. God doesn't want us to be folks who kind of say like, well, I'm forgiven by Jesus and I just can't help myself. Through the words of John, we learn God's not that interested in that. God does not want us to be glib about sin. God doesn't want us to be casual or glib about sin. But, and there's a big but, but, John finishes by saying, but if anybody does sin, and I kind of see see him saying like wink, wink there, because this is a few verses after he said, Everybody sins. But if anybody does sin, wink, wink, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So even as we follow Jesus, yes, we want to confess our sins to God. We want to realize how dependent we are on the grace and mercy of Jesus. But God does not want us to put the weight of the world on our shoulders by assuming that we have to be perfect. By assuming that our relationship with God depends upon our perfection. Because it does not. My relationship with God, your relationship with God does not depend upon your perfection. It depends upon Jesus Christ and His perfection. In the Old Testament, the people would sacrifice an animal without blemish as part of asking for and receiving God's forgiveness. So Christians believe that Jesus is the completion of that whole system. 
that Jesus offered himself willingly as a perfect and innocent person to die in the place of all of us people who are neither perfect nor innocent. The Bible calls him the once and for all sacrifice, that he is how we ask for and receive God's forgiveness by identifying ourselves with Jesus, by saying Jesus is the sacrifice offered on my behalf, not just my daughter's behalf, not just my father's behalf, not just my grandmama's behalf, on my behalf. That apart from Jesus, I cannot be reconciled to God. That Jesus took the weight of the world off our shoulders and put it onto his own as he died on the cross. Perfection is not a weight that we have to bear. And when the weight of perfection finds its way back onto our shoulders, we are encouraged to take it back to Jesus and to remember that your relationship with God, your identity as God's child forever, does not depend upon your perfection, but on His perfection. Now, having said that, as Jesus was dying on the cross, Jesus entrusted something to his followers. He entrusted his mother to John, but he entrusted something to all of his followers, which is he entrusted his ministry, he entrusted his reputation to us. Now, Jesus resurrected. Jesus is still alive and active in the world today. But, but this may be true of you. It's true of a lot of people I speak with. Most people clearly see Jesus' power today by watching the difference it makes in the lives of his followers. And those who really want nothing to do with the Christian faith... Generally, one of, the, one of the, if not the contributing factor, is that they, they don't, aren't sure that they really do see the difference that Jesus is making in the lives of his followers. A few specifically, they'll usually point out. In other words, as Jesus was dying on the cross, as Jesus then resurrected and returned to heaven, he entrusted his ministry, his reputation to us. The Bible says that we are Christ's ambassadors to be people of light, to be people of love, as our way of saying, look at who Jesus is, look at what Jesus is doing in my life, look at what he has done in my life, he can do this for you. My point in all that is saying... How much must Jesus esteem you to have entrusted you with something that important? How much must Jesus have esteemed you and esteem you to have entrusted you with something that important? And so in the same way the Apostle John would have walked away realizing the responsibility for Mary's care was on him. He wasn't going to do it as good as Jesus did it. But he wants to take that privilege and responsibility seriously. You and I, if we follow Jesus or ever decide to follow Jesus, you are Christ's ambassador. You are the ambassador of the God who is light and is love and is life. 
You're not going to do that as good as Jesus. But it's a privilege and a responsibility we want to take seriously. So here's my question as I close out. What role does confessing, what role does confessing your sin, your shortcomings to God play in your spiritual life? What role does confession, confession of your sin, your shortcomings to God play in your spiritual life? Note, I'm not saying you need to come to the church office this week. I'm going to cut a little hole in the wall and you'll sit on one side and I'll sit on the other and you just sort of feed through what you've done wrong and I'll write it all down and, and email it out to some people. This is between you and God. This is between me and God. I have sin that I need to confess to God. But what's the point of confession? Not that you and I would hang our heads, but so that we might actually be able to lift our heads. And to realize we are fully reliant on the forgiveness, the grace, and mercy of God. Here's the better part. God reaches out to us with forgiveness, grace, and mercy through Jesus Christ. So what does confession look like for you? For you, it may be looking at all this and saying, you know, Jesus is my atoning sacrifice. He wasn't just offered on my friend's behalf or my mama's behalf or what. He's offered on my behalf. He offered himself on my behalf to reconcile me to God. I need that. Or if you follow Christ's confession, maybe the need that you and I have to realize as we get closer to God how much more dependent we are on his grace and mercy than we ever realized. That can be hard. That can be hard to, to, to struggle with our own imperfection. But it's good. It's part of growing up spiritually. And that's what John wants us to do. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to, to pray, to talk to God, to listen to God. Maybe even to use this time as a time of confessing to God. Lord, in these moments, we are thankful that you love us so deeply, you allow us to come to you in whatever state we're in. But we also thank you that you love us enough 
that you don't want us to stay that way. You want us to grow closer to you. You want us to grow up into maturity as your children. So help us to do that. Lord, for those of us who are exploring, I pray that we would see you clearly and then decide what it means for us. And Lord, for anyone today who is near the starting line of faith, I pray that he or she might point to you as their atoning sacrifice, the way that they are reconciled to God. And that in doing so, they may be assured and know that they have eternal life through Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship God with our voices, our offering, and our prayer requests.